Good. I was going to say morning. You know what? <laughs> it's a muso morning. 1.30, 1.30 in the afternoon. That, that's muso morning to me. That's a um, fair morning. It is a fair morning. Mm. I hear voices. I hear voices. Ding dong. Who's at my door? None other than James Norbert Ivanyi. How you doing, James? I'm good, brother. Good to be here. Thank you for coming on, mate. Thank you for coming on. I, um, I've been a fan of your playing for a, a little while now. Uh, and in fact, I took a lesson with you online. That's probably about two years ago now. Yeah, it would have been about two years ago. Yeah, and I actually got quite a, quite a bit out of it, man. Um, I was very impressed with your speed and dexterity that I saw on a clip that uh, the guys over at Friedman have played of you, and I was just like, holy hell, how was that? Just jumping from octave <laughs> to octave all over the fretboard. And then I saw that you were from Sydney, and I thought, holy hell, I've got to get in touch with this guy. And mm. as luck would have it, you were doing online Skype lessons, as you still do. So yep. I jumped on and um, i got to say, man, I learned out of one lesson, I still do the practice routine most mornings. I'm glad to hear that, dude. Yeah, yeah. So how's things with you, mate? You've been busy? Yeah, really busy. Um, this year has been uh, interesting for you know obvious reasons. But uh, yeah, just been really busy, obviously doing the teaching thing, uh, doing a lot of production, like I produce records for people a lot um, via Skype or, you know, whatever. So I've been busy doing that. Um, and yeah, recently finished up my new record only just kind of earlier this year. So um, now I'm mainly focused at just having to learn how to play all of that nonsense. And, uh, yes, so that's been keeping me very busy. Yeah, right. It's funny that you say learn to play all that nonsense uh, because mm. talking to uh, Stefan from Obscura on Friday night mm -hmm. and I was thinking to myself, how do they write this stuff? And, and I was very surprised to find out that they used a program called Guitar Pro and pretty much made MIDI demos of everything before they actually attempted to try and play it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting concept. Very interesting concept. But James, I wanted to start off, mate. We can get into the production a bit, a bit later on. I just mm. want to know from you, um, how did you get started playing guitar and what, what started the love affair for you? I, I started, like, uh, I guess, you know, somewhat late in, in life. I didn't start playing until I was about 18. Um, but before that, I was playing drums. That was my, my main love. And to this day, I still wish I was a drummer. And uh, I feel like a phony guitar player still to this day. Um, but uh, I grew up in a musical family, so I was always kind of, you know, around music and, um, you know, was in love with it. But the guitar thing started where it was almost strange. Within the space of one week, I was at a friend's house and his older sister had an electric guitar and it was just sitting in the corner. And I remember picking it up and, you know, playing it. And he showed me how to play a basic riff. And I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, that this this riff that I'd heard so many times, it was quite easy to bring out. And I went home and I, I told my mum that oh, I played a guitar today and it was really cool. And, and it was my birthday not long after that. And she bought me, uh, I think it was ACDC Live at Donington Castle or something. Cool. Right. And uh, and I just remember like that was it. Once I saw Angus Young doing what he does, I, I was hooked and uh, went out and bought my first guitar, which I wish I still had. 
I bought it for $40 from a, a hawk shop here called Happy Hawkers. I don't know if you've heard of this thing. No, no. no it must just what a be name. A, yeah, it must just be a Sydney-based thing. It had two strings on it, and I, I spent the first couple of months getting the bus across town so my friend could tune it up for me. And uh, and it just went from there, man. Like I just once I started, I, I literally never stopped, and it just hasn't stopped since. Wow, wow. Now you said you your first love affair was the drums. Yeah, um, that's really funny because I was just talking to a friend over the last couple of nights, and I said to her that I always thought I'd be a drummer first up. But I was <clears throat> I'd watch film clips and sort of get the whole oh these guys are crossing their hands over and they're doing this, and oh, I think I could do that. And yeah. I started out playing the organ. Um, oh. My mum, uh, being European, wanted me to play the piano accordion. And uh-huh. it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, not going to do that. How about the organ? So she got me the organ and it had the drum yes. machine built into it, which <laughs> awesome. really um, got me hooked on the sound of drum machines and experimenting with the tempo, turning it up to ridiculous tempos and pretty much making – drum and bass and jungle beats <laughs> back when I was a kid. I loved all that stuff. But nice. um, but the carry-on from that is I can program drums really well. Mm. And listening to your stuff, the drums, that is that that's all programmed, isn't it? Uh, well, the record stuff isn't. Like, if you're listening to my albums, that's a drummer called David Horgan, who's my oh, really? bass player's brother who I've been working with since – well, for longer than 10 years, actually, we played in a band together, a band uh, that I used to do called Paradigm for years. And he was in that band with me, and and I eventually left that to start doing a solo thing. And he's worked with me ever since on all of that. But, uh, but, I, but I'm right there with you. I, I feel like I also have quite a good handle of the programming. And I actually get hired to program drums on people's records all the time, which is hilarious and it's probably as close to the drumming dream that i really get to these days um so yeah there's some amazing programs out there now um easy easy drummer to being Mm. the main thing i I lean on these days yeah i can remember when i first discovered Oler england's uh demos online just thinking is he taking two weeks to program these drums how the hell does he do this (laughs) And then I saw him do a little thing on, this is how I do my drums. And it was one of those moments of take my money. Um, Yeah. yeah. What do you use for your programming? I use Superior. Yep. So Um, the big brother of it. Yeah, I think it's still the first one though. Like there's a new one. I think it's Superior 2 now. I feel a bit out of touch. But yeah, I'm using the the first one. I think Superior. Oh no, maybe I am using Superior Drummer 2 and now it's 3. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great, man. Sounds absolutely incredible. I put together all of my, um, pre-production using Superior Drummer. So, yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll work my entire, I'll record my entire album to program drums that I've done and then they will get wiped at the end. So Dave gets to work with a completely mixed, edited, like entire album and then gets to do his own thing to it. So that's how I've kind of always done it. Okay. Okay. So I, I kind of jumped a bit there into the, the whole production thing. You were saying you, know, you saw Angus Young and that was it. Yes. Did yeah. you um, did you happen on a teacher early on uh, that got you on the way to being able to play mm. Angus Young? I did, man. So uh, I, I, I – 
it was self-taught predominantly through kind of high school, just like noodling with friends and, you know, shredding in the mirror and all that kind of stuff. And um, I did see one teacher who was um, like quite formal in his approach, was like, you know, you need to learn all these chords and learn these scales. And that actually really turned me off the instrument because at that time, I don't know, maybe I was just a really distracted younger kid, but I, I was just not into that kind of approach at all. I really just wanted to rock, for lack of a better term, you know? Sure, sure. And so like, I just always felt kind of fearful of going to those lessons, you know, fear of disappointing the teacher and because I, I never did my homework, you know, it was like, go learn these scales and I would go home and just do power chords all week long. And, um, and eventually I was ready to give up the guitar and I kind of stopped playing it and got back into skateboarding and things like that. And uh, my mom was like, no, you know, I'm going to get you to another teacher and you'll stick at it. And she sent me to this guy, his name was Peter Jacobs, and I only had about four or five lessons with him, but it was his approach that just totally changed the game for me, because I remember going into that first lesson, it was very ghetto, like it was in the back of this tiny little guitar store here, and uh, it was like in a kitchenette, out the back kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, and... um, I remember he had like a Mesa Boogie stack in there and I was just like blown away. And um, and I just remember it, like the first thing he said to me was like, so what do you want to know? And I just couldn't believe that. I'd never been asked that before. And I remember saying, can you teach me this this ACDC song? You know, it was the, the Thunderstruck intro. Cool. And he was like, oh yeah, and just like busted it out straight away. And pfft. And that just totally reignited my love with the the instrument again. And um, and it wasn't many sessions, but it was enough that it it was just like immediately it was fun again, and it was just all about having a really good time. And um, and that kind of teaching, you know, his teaching method is kind of what I try to adopt now with people. It's really about what they want to know, what not what I think they should you know, know immediately kind of thing. Sure, sure. I got to say I'm the same. That's the first thing I say um, to my kids that I teach. You know, it's like, what are we learning today? Um, mm-hmm. to throw, their, throw the ball in their court. It's funny. I had uh, Erwin Thomas on last week um, and he was saying his teacher was much like your first teacher in that um, he – said i'm going to show you a whole bunch of scales and things and you're going to get really put off at first but stick at it eventually it's going to make start making sense and he said he was really glad that he went down that way that down that road so i guess everyone's different in what they like you know um that i'd find that very off-putting myself it was later in life that i decided to try and get a bit more knowing of what i was doing Mm. um me too. So if if Peter Jacobs was sort of teaching you stuff like that, how did you get so um, technically proficient? Because you're quite technical <laughs> in your playing. Yeah. Um, I, I guess it was just the, the, a progression of, of things. Like I was – at my core, I'm a rock guy like i'm a classic rock guy that's my favorite kind of thing but you know like like all things you kind of one thing gateways into the next i started listening to you know acdc and then it was led zeppelin and sabbath and floyd and and metallica and pantera to slayer to dream theater to you know obscure for example and necrophagist and 
the kind of the slope of intensity just kept on going up. And so the more that I was exposed to this kind of music, I was just fascinated that people could play like that. I was like, well, here's like Jimmy Page on this side, which, which is great. And then you've got like, you know, Steve Vai over here, for example. And it's like, there's this huge technical gap between those two players. And I guess it was just, I was just fascinated to see what I could do. Like, could, could I even try and play like that at all? And, um, and it's like anything, you know, you see, I remember the first time I saw Steve Vai playing, like I, I think I bought one of those, one of the records back in the day when you, you would just buy a record because the cover was cool. Mm. That's actually how I discovered Van Halen. Really? Uh, yeah. Totally. Wow. I, I went into a music store and I had my $20 and thought I'm going to buy something cool. And, and it was, uh, the, the women and children first. Yeah. Right. With the cover of, you know, and, and Eddie's there with the guitar and the chains all hanging off it and everything. I was like, Oh, this is, this is badass. I'm going to buy this. Yeah. And uh, but but that same that same way I bought I think is it Fire Garden is that that Steve Vai album maybe I'm tripping out um, anyway and I, that I does have a, quite a good cover it's probably the one yeah and I I just remember like hearing that playing and being like what is going on here and just really wanting to know if I could play like that too um, and so I guess the more technical a player you become the more you can use that to compose with and you know, the things that you can imagine become a little bit more complex because you can physically kind of comprehend what you're imagining it's going to play like as well so yeah just a lot of practice i also just fell really in love with the instrument and went at it really hard for about 10 years i didn't do much else except practice i also went to music school which was a, a big motivator and when i went there I was the best guitar player in my high school. And then when I left high school and went to uh, music school, I was the worst guitar player. So I oh, really? Catch you up. <laughs> yeah. So I was just around. I think there was a lot of, a lot of things went right in my kind of journey there where I was exposed to a lot of really high caliber players that really motivated me to go back home and just sit in my room and practice as much as possible. Nice. Nice. So, um, what did you how did you get like um just so flowing in your playing like it's it just flows it's like liquid um was there like a, a practice regime that you you sat down and did for a while or you know did you discover steve vai's 10-hour guitar workout or <laughs> no nah, man i've just i've just always um um i, I appreciate those kind words very much by the way that's very nice that you th think that way. I no still, feel, I still feel like a you know an Egyptian mummy born again trying to uncrust <laughs> every time I play. Don't we all? Yeah, but but um, I've just always been writing since day dot. I I haven't really ever learnt songs from people. I didn't really start learning songs until I started teaching, and people wanted to know songs, and I would be like, oh shit, I better you know figure that out. But uh, yeah, re really since the very beginning, back on that $40 Samick Les Paul copy, that very first guitar, you know, even then I was like doing little tapping diddles and and those were the things that drew me to the guitar was that I could write my own stuff. And uh, so I guess just my imagination um, as it developed musically, it just demanded that I had to play these things. And so, yeah, I just guess, I, I guess... Um, 
I I'm just trying to answer the question of like the the flowing aspect to it. Like I I always think of everything that I play before I play it. So that I'm not kind of really thinking of patterns and stuff. After the fact, it looks like there's a lot of patterns going on. But I imagine phrases a lot. So okay. some of the things I do is I'll imagine a long phrase and then I'll go to the guitar and I'll try and flesh it out as accurately to how I thought it would be as possible. Um, and so, yeah, that dictates a lot of my practice. Um, so... Yeah, I guess if that answers that question at cool. all. Yeah. Well, as I said, the, the one lesson I took with you really opened the door in dexterity, just going through the different combinations of fingers and, and, oh, sure. and picking. Sure. Um, sure. One thing I wanted to know is your approach to the fretboard, because everybody mm. seems to approach a fretboard differently. Um, mm. Are you like a three-note per string guy? Do you use the cage system? Do you learn it one string at a time? How, what's the big... <laughs> the view for you for me if I, if I had to that's that's a good question um if i had to imagine the fretboard uh I, I try to think of it in string pairs a lot of the time so i'm often thinking about how the e and a string work together and then how the d and g work together and how the b and e work together okay and when i break it down along those three pairs of strings you know, horizontally or vertically across the guitar, in my brain, it helps me map out where I'm going a lot easier instead of trying to think of, say, an entire scale position box or an entire mode left to right kind of thing. I just, I'm usually thinking in string pairs. And as I cross over to the next pair, my brain kind of reveals the next pair movement and all that kind of stuff. That makes sense. It's a bit of a weird way of doing it, but that's how I think about it. No, no, it totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Uh, And then there's that, damn b string where the interval is <laughs> is different <laughs> it's always a problem no matter what well guys like tom quayle tune the guitar different to deal with that oh uh, does he really did you not know that i did not know he that. tunes his whole guitar in fourths huh that's the more you know he actually started started following me on instagram last week and, oh cool uh, so i will no longer be doing legato in a public domain uh on the internet man i have I, I've got a video of uh, that I did in Germany last year where I hosted a little guitar battle between him and Sammy Bowler. And I watched that. I, I don't know if it was before that or afterwards. He, thanks, man. Uh, it was really impromptu, really impromptu. <laughs> he, um, he gave me his guitar to have a bit of a play on and was like, wow, okay. Well, I get that. Like you don't have to adjust for the B string. But then mm. he sat beside me and, and, and warmed up and I, I got my camera out and sort of stuck it right up on his right hand and his left hand and just the sound of him it's like a typewriter just when he's oh, yeah. it's amazing you know on, on the stainless stainless steel frets yeah man i i don't know if you've seen the video there's there's this video lurking out there on the dark web of him doing legato on like a classical acoustic or something really i think tony martinez do you, do you know him no tony martinez Great, great guitar player, cool dude. I think him and Tom are, are, are quite good friends and they've done a lot of clinics together and stuff. But I think Tony filmed this video of, of Tom Quayle just legatoing away on this like acoustic. And it was just like that. It was like, you could hear the percussive like perfection and everything. And I remember being like, damn, that is some serious technique. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, a friend of mine, Vladimir, also shot a video around the same time with him where he, mm-hmm. he gave um, gave Vlad a bit of a, a lesson just on how he holds his hands and everything just to get that, that flow. 
Mm-hmm. And it's quite a cool video. If anyone's looking for some ways to try and get that <laughs> happening, try and play more like Tom Quayle. Catpick yeah. Studios. Catpick Studios on YouTube. Mm. Check that out. Um, that'll give you a bit of an, in, an insight to how he does it all. Oh, I will. Man, what other players um, out there that just make you go, whoa, that, that's insane? Oh, man. I, uh, I, I don't really. There's just, well, there's too many to name. Like, I'm too There's a lot now, isn't there? People. There is a lot. Um, but uh, I, I guess while, while you were mentioning something about Tom Quayle, I was thinking back on that previous question about like the flow and the technique stuff you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And then it came to me. I, gu- I guess one of the things I've always really valued in playing is the quality of what's being played. So I've always been really drawn to guys who have really good technique, whether that is you know, executed in a really complex way. Let's just say like, you know, Malmsteen, for example, like really fast, crazy stuff or simple stuff like Gary Moore, where the vibrato like just makes it, you know, and it's, it's so, it's so vocal and nice. Um, so I guess that's always been at the core of how I practice is to try and have a lot of technical quality to what I'm trying to do instead of it just being fast or, you know, anything like that. And I think that's what I was trying to impart maybe in, in that lesson we had was, you know, I, I really value technique and doing it at a high quality level. And I hold myself really accountable to that stuff as well. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, yeah. So as far as like players who blow my mind, um, again, both end, both ends of the spectrum, dude. Like, this is going to sound really weird, but I think the thing that I've listened to more this year than anything else are, like, those early Sabbath records. Wow. Because I, because I listened to them when I was really young. But, you know, it's like you listen to stuff when you're young and, you, you know, then you get older and, and you learn stuff yourself and, and you know what goes into making records and goes into playing. And then you go back and listen to it. I've just been so fascinated by, by like the soul and the heart and the technique and stuff that is like in that stuff. It's just, to me, really, really fascinating to go back at it now with uh, hopefully a bit more of a mature ear and, and listen to it. Cool. So, so I have actually been going back and listening to a lot of like the early classic rock 60s and 70s prog stuff that I hadn't listened to in like 15 years. Yeah. Um, so all those players are actually really fascinating me to the max. But then, you know, all the new school guys like Martin Miller, Tom Quayle, uh, Sammy Bowler as well. Like I, I was only, you mentioned him before, I was only introduced to his playing about a year and a bit ago, maybe. Okay. And um, and then, you know, we hung out at NAMM this year and we both played at the, at the Friedman booth. And I mean, he is just doing really cool original stuff, like musically. Like mm-hmm. musically, it's very, very nice. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, like all the other guys, like Nick Johnson, Pliny, absolute legend. Um, uh, Roe from Melbourne, I built this guy, another great guitar player. I feel like there's just a lot of new up-and-coming guys in this wave of instrumental music that are just like world class, absolutely amazing, like super inspiring, and and I'm listening to all that stuff as well. Man, I had to take a step back from from Instagram. I I don't check it out much because it just got too scary. There was too many guys <laughs> that made me go, 
whoa, man, I got nothing compared to that. Yeah, there's always some child prodigy to ruin your day before it started. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yep. Now, you said you started off, was it a, did you say a Hondo Les Paul with two strings? Oh, no, on, a, Onyx. It was, it was a Samic. 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 Okay. I and, wish I could tell. And um, gear wise, was it quite a progression to get to, because you're playing Sir now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You had a few guitars that led up to that, or did you sort of <laughs> go from having the, the cheapies straight into a good guitar at an early oh, age? No. No, no, I had, man, I, I've, I've probably had about fifty guitars since yeah. I was playing, um, and uh, yeah, like I, yeah, I started with that, and um, from there I went through a string of like weird pointy eighties guitars, which I really liked. Like I had some toothpaste Chevelles, and I had a Kramer with like the hockey puck, you know, the hockey yeah. head stuff. Yeah. It's all these terrible guitars, and uh, I mean, like, they weren't terrible because they were bad, but they were just cheap. You know, I bought these cheap guitars because they looked cool, basically. Yeah. Most of my young guitars' decision-making was because they looked cool. You know, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Um, but I think I didn't really, like, my first proper guitar um, was a Gibson Les Paul, actually. Oh, nice. Yep. Had a, had a really nice... Um, it was called a desert burst was the finish. I think if you know the one, it was, it was really nice. Uh, that, that at that point was the most expensive and, and nice guitar I'd ever had. And, and I loved it. And I, I eventually sold it because at the time I was playing in like progressive metal bands and I was actually quite interested in tremolo and, and all, you know, having a bar and it, it ended up just gathering dust for a while. Because shortly after that, I got an endorsement with Carvin Guitars. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's strange. A lot of people don't know that. And, um, yeah, this is before they were Kiesel or, or whatever they are now. Yep. And so I ended up getting uh, a few of those. I had a custom-made seven-string and uh, two... That back then they were called the California Carve Top Series. I think Keys will do something similar to that now, but they had that PRS kind of look, it was like the double cut arch top thing. Yeah. So I had two of those and I loved those and they were really nice. And um, yeah, so from there I actually had a PRS that I thought was really nice mm-hmm. and I still think they're a lovely looking guitar, but I just had really bad luck with this one for whatever reason. Like it started delaminating on the neck and had some issues with it. And uh, yeah, so strangely enough, as I was having the issue with that guitar, uh, a friend of mine had a Sir and I'd never heard of them before. And he brought it over to a guitar store that I was working at. And he was like, dude, you got to check this thing out. And I played it. And I just remember, I just remember feeling like it, was the easiest feeling playing guitar that I'd ever played. I just couldn't believe how effortlessly I could pull out all my party tricks on it. And uh, so that started my whole thing with Sir. And funnily enough, at the time, I was really into Guthrie Govan. I just discovered him, and then I discovered that at the time he was playing Sir. And so I was like, oh, this this is all meant to be. Yep. And so I saved up lots of money and bought my first one. <laughs> And, uh, and then, yeah, that started my relationship with Sir, which is um, uh, nearly going to be 10 years, I think, wow. this, 
this year. Yeah, so I've been playing Sir guitars for nearly 10 years, which is crazy to say and think about, yeah. Is your main Sir uh, built on any production model or is it something that's completely custom to you? Uh, you mean like my black guitar, mm. for example? Yeah. Um, well, I, they, they have a production that's based off the Sir Modern, which is one of their production model guitars. Um, but I spec'd the guitar completely from like the ground up and I actually based it off like that Les Paul thing. Like I'm still a Les Paul guy deep down. Like I'm, I'm still like Jimmy Page in the dragon suit with the yeah. Les Paul on my knees. I wish, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's like a mahogany based guitar, mahogany neck, mahogany, uh, body, maple cap kind of thing. It's got those kind of ingredients. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I love that guitar. I use it live predominantly. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but on the records, 95% of the time you're hearing my, my Sir uh, Antique, which is like the Stratocaster style one. Oh, right. Okay. That's what almost 100% of my albums are recorded with. Wow. Okay. I know that I always get that reaction. <laughs> yeah, because in the clips you, you've got the, uh, the the modern. That's right. Yeah. 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 I'm a bit of a strat guy myself. Um, so when you said you, you, you're a Les Paul guy at heart, uh, I do see your um, – what, what did you call it, the strat-looking one? What, what's that? The antique. Antique. Yeah. yeah if I, an antique S. So this is like a custom-made one as well. Yeah, right. If I was to get a Sir, probably something like that, very much like that. It's uh, – yeah, I mean, look, it's lovely. This one, you can see it's got the humbucker in the back. and uh, Beautiful. It's like done some serious time, this guitar. Most of this is me just clumsy near my desk. Oh, really? So that's not a relic job? You've actually it, relic it naturally? It was a relic job uh, originally, yeah. It, was, it, it had some aging on it, but yeah. I've um, also given it my fair share of scarring. Um, but it's funny saying being a Strat guy. So I, I always loved the sound of Strats. You know, there's, I think there's something about single coils where the note has this unpredictability, which is really fascinating. You know, you're a humbucky, you play the note, it's going to sound the same over and over again. It's got this like kind of wonderful consistency to it. But I've always been fascinated by that like, individual character of every note on a single coil. It's always, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, right. you know, that's how I feel about it anyway. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't until I discovered Sarah and I started playing there. Uh, like strat style guitars that for the first time i could have a strat that was easy to play and felt glidey and slippery and easy but um but had that sound you know because I, I i'm not a fan of you know battling the battle axe guitar which most of my strat experiences at that time had been yeah um so yeah that guitar has just become like my favorite guitar i absolutely love it and you got floyd roses on those or was that a, a Godo that i saw on that one just then yeah, they're the, the Gotto 510s, yep. the 510 bridge, which I have on all of them. It's uh, my favorite bridge ever. I absolutely love it. Uh -huh. I've actually got one sitting in, in my little drawer over there, just waiting to uh, put together a little parts parts cast on one of these days. I've probably got enough yeah. parts for it now, now that I think of it. But, <laughs> um, yeah, and I've never had a guitar with a, uh, a 510, so that's sitting there. I should do something with it. Oh, um, it's just glorious, man. It. It, it takes a, a lot of punishment and stays in tune. I mean, you know, you're obviously not going to do your Steve Vai throwing around business with it, but uh, it has 
just the most non-resistive airy kind of vibrato feel to it like when if you're doing you know the tram across a chord for example yep. just it's just really nice and very musical sounding bridge mm. i think you'll really like it actually i do have a spare body um, yeah i'm you just inspired me i might throw throw something <coughs> together with the, the 510 on there i was Still saving to get something with a floyd rose i wanted a bit of floyd rose action back in my life yeah <laughs> yeah but mainly because if I break a string on a Floyd, I can put it back on. You know, you, you cut, you cut the, the ball end off. Well, if you mm. leave enough slack, oh, broke a string, put it back on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not lucky enough to have a string endorsement. If I did, then I probably wouldn't care. But, you know, you've got to save, <laughs> save some money somehow when you're a broke muso <laughs> like me. Those strings last, totally. Yeah, yeah. How about <laughs> amps, man? Tell us about your, your journey amp-wise. What was your first oh. one? Oh, my first amp. I actually mm. still have it. Oh, it's um, it's it's behind that chair over there. It's one of those little Marshall MG10. Uh, like it, it just sounds absolutely atrocious. But um, <laughs> but it, you know, I remember at the time it, you would you would turn the overdrive to full and it would give you that immediate like chuggy tone and and uh, I was just blown away by that. Uh, so I'm actually very happy that I still have that. Nice. Um. Yeah, man, like obviously now playing the Friedman amps um, and I was only a convert to the British style hot rodded Marshall thing about five years ago. Um, my whole life up until that point, I'd been really into the American voice amps. And um, look, I had a lot of amps. I worked in guitar stores kind of straight out of school up until maybe seven years ago. Or maybe longer, yeah, maybe like seven or eight years ago, and so I've pretty much played most amps that have existed, whether they be vintage or kind of current things, and um, so I've had a lot of amps. You know what it's like when you work in that world or you're near that world, and gear is more accessible to you. You know, you just kind of have everything. You just constantly totally. trade, trading stuff and buying stuff, and yeah. And so I've had a lot of amps. Um, for the longest time I was playing boogie amps. I think I was playing playing them for the longest up until I was playing the Freedman. And I've had, had them all. I've had Road Kings, Jewel X, Mark Fives, um, all that nonsense. Cool. Still got, still got some in storage somewhere. Got yeah. an old 5150 somewhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and so, yeah, obviously now I'm just very into the hot-rodded Marshall thing, just, you know, particularly the, the BE thing. Because I always loved that sound, you know. Like I said, being a classic rock guy, I love that pokey mid-range kind of blocked nose, hay fever rock tone. Uh-huh. Um, but like the same thing I was saying about the Strat, you know, I'm not into fighting the gear that I'm playing. And I, I, you know, I've played lots of vintage plexis, and again, like unless you had them on, like you know, stroke volumes. They're just kind of not that great to play. Like you really have to work ten times as hard for the same result, or at least I found I did. Mm-hmm. And um, but I always wanted to have that sound. So there's almost like a synergy there with my discovery of like the the Sir take on stuff. It was the the Friedman take on that that really finally connected those dots for me, where I could have that tone, but it was in a very almost like mixed and mastered style sound straight out of the box i could play it at low volume it was very effortless and musical um and so yeah 
that that's kind of just what I'm really into now. I'm really into using that classic Brit tone in like a he- heavy setting. I'm really yeah. into that. Cool. And have you uh, delved much into the modelers and uh, the, the, the digital side of things as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I've been using fractal gear for probably the same amount of time. Um, and I adore it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think everything has its place and, and its uses. And on tour, I use the AX8, um, which is actually there. I don't know if you can see it. Yep, sure can. I re- I've just recently got it mounted to that lovely uh, Nautilus board, which was uh, kindly sent to me by Nautilus Effects, Australian uh, board company. Absolutely beautiful. Um, so I use that on tour just because like guys like me, impossible to take a rig on the road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, BE 100s aren't exactly uh, in every venue <laughs> for me to use. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I love it, man. And I've got the Axefx 2 as well, which I use. Um, my records are usually a blend of everything. So I do a lot of reamping with heads and a lot of Axefx as well. So cool. um, I, uh, I really love being a guitarist right now and just having all those options you know there's kind of something for every situation there's definitely a lot of options available isn't there if you're um well, you, yeah you, you mentioned reamping. um what are you using to reamp your stuff is there a particular uh, so interface I've, well yeah i've got the sir reactive load um which is fantastic i've got the first one and recently just got the second one the the ir so you can actually load impulse responses right into it so i've used the own hammer stuff um a bunch of the fractal cabinets as well uh, as well are fantastic mm-hmm. and so you know the technology makes it so easy but the with the reactive load ir it has all of its own uh impulse responses or cabinet models you can load your own ones in there and so i can literally just crank on a head plug it into that plug that into my interface boom And that's how you're recording most of your guitars um, for your albums? Yeah, about 50-50. So I'm a big believer that the amp that you play through, um, it it really, at least in my opinion, like I I play the amp as much as I'm playing the guitar. Sure. Like the the way that it makes this... (laughs) For me, all I'm looking for in an amp is how it makes the guitar feel. Like, does it give me confidence when I go for that thing? Will that thing happen? Or will the amp push back on me and make the strings feel a little less elastic-y and that kind of stuff? So, you know, obviously certain heads have certain characteristics. On the new record, I used the BE100 for a bunch of stuff and the Dirty Shirley for a bunch of stuff. And they just made me play really different ways. So there's quite big differences in the songs that those are on. Um, And so for the rest of the stuff, like the leads and and the cleans and all of the embellishing stuff, I'm just straight into the front of the Axe Effects too. And they come together beautifully. Nice. I've never tried a Dirty dirty Shirley. I had the the small box uh, for a couple of years and I absolutely adored that amp. It was uh, an amazing Mm. amp. Um, I remember when you had that, yeah. Yeah, um, I want to get one again. I might see if Dave can do a tweak on the uh, BE channel on it and maybe give it the uh, the Steve Stevens treatment because I, I have played <laughs> the Steve Stevens head and, oh, yeah, that's a that's a sound I like right there. Yeah, dude, that's, that's badass. Mm. So how this does the, show ha- is awesome, man. 
What's that? Uh, the Shirley was awesome. You were just saying you haven't played one. Yeah, what, what's different about about the Shirley to the, the small box or uh, a brown eye? Uh, to me, the difference is like the, the, the brown eye is very refined sounding to my ear. Like I said, it has this kind of mixed and mastered quality about it, which is really nice. Uh, makes the guitar just feel like rubber bands. It's it gives gives me lots of confidence. That kind of sound. Yep. The Dirty Shirley is like the total opposite to me. It like doesn't give a shit if I'm having a good time or not. It's just like raw, old school. Um, you know, you really got to earn what you're trying to get at on that thing. Okay. And uh, and it's really cool for that total opposite kind of feel. Yep. How about effects? Are you do you use much effects uh, when you're playing? Look, I can't say that I, I do. I've never actually been a, a big, like, pedal guy. Um, I've certainly had pedal boards for the sake of just wanting to have one and look at it, and then I just get pissed off at having to wire it all together and get rid of it all. Yeah. So I've never been a big effects guy. Um, I love overdrives. I love delay and that kind of stuff. Um, but no, not really. Like, I, I've... Right now, I, you know, say if I'm going out on tour, I have everything coming from the AX8, and there isn't a lot going on there. Um, I really have four patches, mm -hmm. and the way I have it set up is, you know, down the bottom there's the four switches, and then at the top there's another four switches. So I have it set up. So let's just say number one is my clean channel it defaults to going to the, the, the amp model and the necessary effects, but the top four also become a virtual pedal board. Okay. So in those top four, I have like rotary, like I have a Leslie thing that I can turn on and off, um, a different reverb and a different delay, and I can control both of those with the pedal, uh, with the expression pedal. And same thing, but different stuff for two, three, and four rhythm lead kind of sounds. Um, but haven't been too big on, on effects. On this new record, though, actually, it's funny you say that. I, I used a lot of wah. Um, I used a lot of phaser, which is <laughs> something I've really never done before. Cool. Um, and some, fl like, flanger on solos and stuff just to make it sound kind of trippy and, and cool. Um, and But those have all been uh, fractal, like, in the in the box kind of effects. Yeah, right. It's funny you should say adding you know, some flanging or phasing because... EVH was, you know, his classic sound was to always whack on the phaser when he was doing solos. Yeah, totally. And it wasn't until I was playing um, in a cover band with uh, with a bunch of guys that would get me along when they needed to be a four-piece. Their, their lead guitar player was amazing. Um, mm. But he'd always throw on the phaser, the EVH, little MXR job for his yeah. solos, and it just made it pop out man like it just does, that right. yeah just that slight thing i don't think he used much of a volume boost but that yeah. was enough just to make it sit out front a little it was really cool yeah so is that how you were using the phaser when you, when you said you were you put on a bit not not gently i'm not using gently. it really aggressively yeah uh, so there's just a few passages where um you know i wanted that to have that really like trippy kind of when I think phase or flange, I think of suddenly the guitar like goes underwater kind of thing. Okay, yeah. And so I, I tried to get it to sound as much like that as possible. So not not for big moments, but certain phrases I would I would add it into stuff. Sure. How about delays and reverbs and stuff? When you're taking solos, do you do you throw much of those on? Always, dude. Yeah. Um, 
my whole like delay philosophy comes from John Petrucci. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love the way he uses delay to because I play in a three piece band as well. Like I don't have backing guitar behind me. So I always just loved how he, you know, when he goes to do a lead, it just fills the whole room and the whole thing with this like epic, you know, sunshine through the clouds kind of thing. Um, and so I go for that as well. So my, my take on delay is I, I like a clean kind of analog ish mix in stereo and I love that ping pong sound. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much usually always set 550, 750 milliseconds kind of thing. So it's kind of chasing me around the fretboard, that kind of effect. Okay. Um, and I just have different levels of that for different solos, really. Yeah, right. Uh, so do you, do you, you said, you know, 550, 750. Do you mm. ever adjust it to the tempo of the song? Do you use the tap tempo when you pedal board? No. Uh, no, I ain't got no time for that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're playing live, you're not using um, – are you playing to a track at all when, when you yeah, go to- – Yeah, uh, we're playing to a track. Um, so, and yeah. do you have program changes going on um, within that? Like, Or do you automatically uh, – does it automatically change from program change numbers as part of your track or do you manually change the sound as you're going? Oh, no, I'm still manually – you know, like stepping on the wrong buttons constantly through the set. Yeah. Uh, I, I see these guys talk, you know, how they've got their, you know, like a Mac triggering their patch changes. And I'm mm-hmm. just like, oh my God, I like, I feel like way too much of a boomer to even comprehend how techy that must be. Yeah. So right. I'm still, I'm still there. Yeah. Just like stomping on stuff, trying to make it happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, have, I haven't actually had that yet where, um, I've been in a situation, I've, I've played with tracks in the past, but not had program change numbers. And mm. I don't know, I, I guess you'd get used to it, but there's just something about, well, no, this is what I want to use right now. You know, I changed my mind from last night. Um, I want this patch to- now. Totally. I mean, I would like to try it. It makes sense to how we do it. Like we, we run to tracks and, you know, if we make a mistake, there's no fixing it. Like we've, we can't make mistakes when we play. So it makes sense to have the the patch changes, you know, say run off the same computer or something like that. So I think I actually am going to try look into that. Um, and instead of taking the AX8 out, I might be able to take like a rack unit out, which would make it a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, so for now though, yeah, I'm just still kind of stomping away. Cool. Now y- your music's really technical. Um, how do you go about writing that? Um, I know talking to the guys from Obscura, mm. they were saying that they were using Guitar Pro and making little MIDI demos of it first and, and then mm. actually attempting to learn to play it afterwards. Is there a process for you? And how do you remember the arrangements and how everything goes? <laughs> With great difficulty. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, so I'm I'm familiar with guys who who do it the guitar pro way. Um, which isn't totally boggles my mind because I've never used Guitar Pro. I mean, I, I can barely read tab, let alone make it. Um, I've always been an ear against the speaker, the slow way approach kind of guy. Okay. Um, and that's how I write too. I mean, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot with you know s- students who I do songwriting with, and um, my, my approach is that I always write from what I call the linear approach, 
So I don't commit an idea to the session. So say I sit down to write a song. I don't commit an idea unless it is to be used as the very opening idea of the song. So I only ever will imagine an intro of some description, whether it be a rhythmic thing or something on the keys or a guitar idea. I'll try and imagine whatever it is as long as, long as it's the first thing that's going to happen in the song. Okay. Which took me years to get right because as a guitarist, impulsively you want to kind of come up with a riff first. You want to come up with some kind of riff or some kind of chord structure or something. And I just found the more that I did that, the more I was just making this problem for myself of, you know, I would write this riff and maybe that riff was like the central part of the song. And then I had this problem of I had to write, you know, backwards in time to the intro and then forwards in time to the end of the song. And my arrangements were just like not satisfactory when I did it that way. I just found it was like the riff salad kind of approach. Okay. Yep. Um, so I always try to imagine the intro and from there I will work just forward in time in, uh, until I have the complete song essentially is how I do it. That's kind of the short way of describing it. I think people overlook the fact that the best bit of gear, I know guys that spend all this money on gear, um, be it for playing guitar, studio, video. Mm. And some of these, these guys, the more gear they have, the worse their productions are because <laughs> they're trying to rely on that and they're not getting the fact that your best creative tool is this and these, you know, being able to hear something mm-hmm. in your head and then going after it. You, you don't need all the gear in the world. So it sounds like maybe by you imagining the intros and everything, you're shooting for something that's actually good and not letting technique or gear dictate the song. Oh, yeah. Never, never. Like the, the I, I only, like pe- people say that, you know, you know, you know, as far as playing technical, when people say that my music is technical, and you know, I'd agree with that. There's times where it's it's technical, but I only try to learn enough technique to facilitate the kind of music that I want to make. Um, and so sometimes I just want to make really crazy sounding stuff, and so I need to have enough technique to do that. But it's never the point of it, like technique for the sake of technique. I actually find technique practicing and learning it's like stressful you know totally. but but it has a musical application like like speed for example in music has a musical application i think as long as it's not just speed for the sake of speed you know i liken it to like you know when you see just just talking about instagram guitar plays for example if it's like every video you ever see from someone is them playing something really fast by that fourth or fifth video, it's like just really discounted, in my opinion. Like it's not so, that impressive anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas speed is suddenly injected musically into some scenario. It's like, oh shit, yeah, that's really impressive. A big eye opener on that was going to Soundwave mm-hmm. a few years ago, mm-hmm. and they had all these bands, Dragon Force and all that kind of thing. And these guys are notorious for yeah, just absolutely shredding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I noticed. It was just going over over the general public's head. You probably have one or two guitar heads that are going, "Oh, that's amazing." Mm. Then Allison Chains came on, and oh, Jerry yeah. Jerry's up there doing <laughs> his soulful thing, man. You know, playing the right part for the song. And then mm. every now and then he'd just do a little, yeah, you know, just 
just a couple of seconds of a, of a little flurry of notes. And the mm-hmm. crowd would just erupt and go, yay, every time mm-hmm. he'd do that because mm-hmm. he knew that, no, man, I'm playing some beautiful melodies here and I'm just going to throw a bit of that out. There you go. And, yeah, it has a lot more impact that way, doesn't it? I, I, I think so. And I, I certainly try to adopt speed in that sense as well. Like I try to inject it into the music to like serve a musical purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so like as far as writing, man, like that that's how I do it. I've always done it that way from the very beginning. I, um, uh, at least since the beginning of making records, I try to start right at the beginning. And if I come up with a riff because I feel like it, I actually just forget that riff. I just let it go because I know that it will just present like this issue that I have to untangle if I if I just commit this riff and then try to work in front of it and, and after it. And I do this with people sometimes. I'll say, all right, let's write a riff, for example. Call it the snowball effect, right? If I just write a progression and then I just cut it off at the bar line, I'll go, what do you reckon should happen next? And like never someone goes, oh, I don't know. It's always like, oh, it should do this next. Like, because that musical information always kind of dictates what should come next. And so I find that to be really true. So if I write an idea that's an intro, when I finish for the day, I, you know, I'll get in the car or go for a walk and I'll listen to that demo that I made that day. And whenever it stops, I, my brain always is like, oh, I should, I should try this next. And yep. this snowball effect kind of starts. And, cool. uh, and that's my approach to songwriting. Okay, so how about um, production-wise, uh, the, the gear that you use for your productions? Because you said that you, you record everything yourself. Um, yeah. How did you get into the, the production side of things and what gear are you using? And as you do that, I'm just going to have a quick bio break and I, I can still hear you. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Yes. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> so, I yeah. This would happen. Yeah, yes. Uh, so, um, yeah. How did you get into the production side of things and what gear are you using? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I guess I got into the production side of things just out of necessity. Like, uh, not being able to afford to get into studios um, or really having access to people that could do what I needed um, at a pace that was, um, you know, something that I would want to do. So, you know, plus technology, I guess, makes these things a lot easier. You know, anyone can now grab a copy of Pro Tools and, and teach themselves just how to get going and and it's inspiring so i think getting some results with home recording just makes you want to do better every single time um and that was true for me as well like i started off on a little behringer like rca interface thing and just slowly improved the studio until where it is now um but it's all pretty simple welcome back (laughs) nobody Um, nobody was none the wiser that's right. Um, so, yeah, so, like, you know, I don't have lots of outboard gear or anything like that in the studio. It's, it's actually, it's, it's quite simple. And every piece that I've added to it uh, really needs to serve the purpose that it needs to be very easy and inspiring. Like, I don't want to come in here and be going problem-solving gear or trying to have to do a million things before I can start riffing. Like I just want to hit a button and, and off I go. And so everything is kind of set up that way. 
Um, I do everything in the box, so you know, plugins and cool. And, and you mentioned Pro Tools. Are you a Pro Tools guy? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and and you're right. Everything is available in the box now, isn't it? Like um, <laughs> you, you don't need. I've got just sitting here a nice preamp, and I've got an 1176 compressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I very rarely use those unless I'm tracking vocals for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't sing myself on anything, uh, but everything in the box now is is great. And yeah, man, I think the results between you know hardware and in the boxes is all debatable. Um, I think if if using you know, a piece of hardware like an old compressor or getting your hands on like a Chandler or something if that inspires you, then that's worth it just for that. Like if it just gives you that little zing of inspiration, that's awesome. You're a freaking mind reader. I said I've got a preamp there and it's a Chandler. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, you know, like I think heart, like gear is good for that. I feel the same way about amps. I mean, amps. You know, if just looking at it and smelling it and turning those knobs gives you some inspiration, then it's worth it. But if you don't need that and you're happy with the digital solution, then that's great too. I think they all sound as good as each other and they all have a place, you know. Um, So, like, I'm self-taught like anyone else when it comes oh not like anyone else sorry but like like a lot of guys these days when it comes to recording. I just started doing it out of necessity because um, I work quickly and I didn't want to have to wait to go to studios and stuff like that. I just wanted to have an album right now. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you do your first thing and you listen back on it and and you get some more experience and you go, wow, I really, that sounded like absolute garbage. And you learn for the next one. And again, and just, just hope to do better than the last time. That's all I ever really hope to do. It takes a while, doesn't it? A lot of trial and error. And yeah, like man. you say, hearing stuff that you've put out and thinking wow okay i need to improve this that do you find that you want to go back and redo those albums as you've gotten better with the production <laughs> that's, definitely that's not definitely not um my thing has always been like i don't care if something sounds shit or that my playing you know uh may not have been as good then as it is now or anything my whole philosophy has always been that like you know if if I'd have died and and someone came across my record, you know, I would really want that to be a reflection of the kind of person that I was so that I really cared so that I investigated how to do it the best I could with the knowledge that I had. And you know what it's like as a musician. It's, it's always a problem of, you know, the more, you know, the, the less, you know, kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And so, you know, I can say looking back on those records that, you know, at the time I, I really gave it, like I tried to know everything I could. I tried to do the best job I could. You know, I tried to get the best take every time and, and, you know, tried to mix it as best as I could. But then, you know, you finish that and eventually that kid grows up and you, you have to let it off into school. And, uh, you know, the next time again, you, you now know more, but you know less. So you try to do better and, and that just goes on and on. We just had a question thrown at us by Nick and I think you, you've already answered this, but he's asking if your writing process involves digital drum tracks or an actual drummer. It's it's me programming uh, all the pre-pro for the demo. 
So I program drums to help me get a really good complete image of like where the song is going and what it's going to sound like at the end. And uh, it helps me mix, um, you know, to have that range of stuff in there, like all the cymbals and the top end and the, the low end and the kicks and, and all that kind of stuff. So no, man, it's, it's all me. It's all a very lonely experience. <laughs> <laughs> it can get that way. I just got a laptop. So you're seeing me on a, on a laptop here. And um, mm. that has been great because my iMac, which is just over here, I was always chained to that for anything I wanted to do, um, mm. be it uh, music, video, even down to doing thumbnails for everything that yes. you put online. Uh, so getting a laptop has really opened the door of being able to go and sit at a friend's place and even if there's a movie on I'm just in somebody else's company and not sitting by myself working yeah, away so you say that because I'm looking at doing the exact same thing this year I, I I said that as soon as I was done with like everything to do with this new record I'm gonna finally get rid of the old iMac and like I've got all this gear in a rack and all this stuff and I, I follow all of these um like Instagram like studio porn pages and um, and like whenever I just see someone set up where it's like, you know, a little laptop, like a MacBook and like that one UA interface and like a pot plant, I'm like, oh, that's what I want. That's all I want. Like just the most basic setup, like nice and simple. And so uh, I've got a few more bits and pieces to do with the new record, like all the live tracks and stuff. But once that's done, I'm finally going to, I'm yeah I'm on this iMac that I've used since 2011, so it's quite old. I, I got a 2011 as well, mid mid 2011. Yes, mid 2011. Yep, yep, yeah. I've I've souped souped that up and got. So uh, I, I only haven't updated it because it's like never had an issue. It's just amazing. I've blown the graphics card out on it and I got that replaced, but that's the only issue I've had. I mean, mm. I put a, a solid state drive in it that I boot from. Um, I put a secondary drive that I record on my audio to, and it kicks butt. Um, it's crazy, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. I After think about how this computer has been like powered on for like a decade, mm. and and even just then, like I finished my new record. Some some of the songs were rocking like sixty tracks, yep. and like no no lag or issues or anything like that. It's well, quite now with, cool. with Pro Tools, with the ability to be able to freeze tracks. Uh, especially, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's just not an issue before you had to have this super body computer. The one thing right. that, that it does let me down on is uh, multicam editing in Final Cut. So sure. Uh, sure. that's why the, the new MacBook, uh, I'm hoping, will handle that a lot more. Yeah, I agree, man. Video has never been great with this one either. It's like it, as soon as I try, because, you know, I recently I got like a camera recently. So, you know, I, I of course, put everything to like the highest quality setting it would go and uh as soon as i tried to get that on my computer my computer would just have like an immediate heart attack so it doesn't do the video thing very yeah, well yeah um i'm gonna bring up injury through overplaying mm. because mm. uh i have struggled in recent years um we haven't talked about whether you've played in cover bands and, and stuff along the way um mm. i i did a lot of that and in fact i said yes to way too many um, cover bands a few years ago mm -hmm. and um, developed tendonitis and RSI in, in my fingers and it's taken me a long time to get over that. In fact, mm -hmm. the whole lockdown thing, I spent the first two months of that 
just didn't touch the guitar at all. Stopped going to the gym, all that kind of stuff. Just thought, just give the body a break. And yeah. I was surprised to recently see um, on your Facebook that uh, you've had a bit of bit of trouble with injury yourself lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that um, something that's plagued you for a while? Yeah. Well, it's plagued me for about – it plagued me properly for about a year. And then there was about six months of recovering and now I'm fine. Um, but yeah, it was, um, really, really a dark time while it was going on and it's, it's hard to know why it it started. It's probably just a combination of, I think over the last three years, I think I've played more and harder than I think I ever have, especially doing this new record. Um, you know, I would work on it six hours a day and then I would teach four hours a day and, then I was touring and I was doing gigs and, and all of this stuff at the same time. Um, so there just really wasn't like a period there for a few years where I wasn't like smashing the guitar really hard. And plus, you know, like we're not getting any younger and all that kind of thing. And um, it just hit me one day. It was really strange. I was, I was in a lesson um, with a guy over Skype and I just I didn't have any pain or anything, but I went to bend a string and it just didn't happen. Like I just couldn't bend it. Wow. And I thought, oh, that, that's odd. I must have just done something clumsy there. And I kept repetitively trying to bend the string. And I just didn't have the strength to bend it. And so, as you can imagine, like, I had to stave off a giant anxiety attack for the rest of that session. And uh, and then after it, I remember, like, just I kept trying for, like, the, the course of the evening. And that's when I started to notice, like, oh, shit, there's something really wrong with me here. Like, I cannot play properly anymore. And, uh, and I would wake up in the night at like two in the morning for weeks to just like come in here and start bending stuff and just see if I was working. Oh, and the other great thing about that was that this happened like three days before I went and did a tour with. So like, (laughs) yeah, the, 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 my motivation to do that tour was at an all time low and, and I just, you know, taking the stage, I didn't know if I had to play my music. I didn't know if it was going to work or what was going to happen. Um, and it did work, but it was hard. Like I could tell that there was problems while I was playing. Um, so dude, that started like, uh, a year of doctors and trying to get to the bottom, find it out and what was really going on. And, and it just mentally, I found it really difficult. Like I'm a really optimistic, happy guy. And even through that, I was very optimistic that I'd get through it. And I continued to play and work and do everything that entire time. But I was background becoming frustrated that I couldn't seem to overcome it because it was going on for about a year. And eventually it was like, all right, I really need to find out what's going on. So I had scans done on both my arms and that revealed that I just had like extensive tearing through my forearms in all the tendons. And, you know, tendons don't get blood supply the same way that uh, other things in your body do so they take so long to heal um so i was told look you just need to stop playing guitar for six months so i was like that's just like not gonna happen it's just a nightmare scenario for me um so yeah like i said in the post i went and saw a physio and this guy was a really charismatic um eccentric dude he was like no 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 you, you don't want to stop playing he's like that that's the worst thing you can do because doctors say to people you should stop playing and look things i guess work differently for people but but his approach was you know you, you stop playing and 
stop using your arms. And then basically while you're doing that, your muscles and everything are just atrophying. So you're just getting weaker and weaker. And then you come back to play and you're in a worse position now than before. And then you get stuck in this loop and people just kind of make themselves worse and worse. So he was like, you need to start conditioning and exercising to support what you're doing now. And again, he was like, you know, you're not getting any younger. It's not like when you're young and you can just smash yourself and have no reper- you know, repercussions. Um, and he's a um, Guinness, World Re- uh, Guinness World Record winning rock climber. Oh, wow. So, so I remember seeing like his arms and he was just like mega jacked. And I was like, I want those arms when I play guitar. Yeah. And um, he was like, look, it, from now on, you're only going to get out what you put in. So you really need to put in looking after your arms now and strengthening them and keeping them flexible. And and so I was given this whole routine of stuff that I have to do. And I was like, all right, well, let's just get it done. And, and uh, Sarah, my fiance, was really supportive and made sure I did the exercises constantly. And and within about three weeks, I remember being like, God damn, I'm back. Like, nice. No pain, feeling strong, feeling good. Kept coming in here all hours of the night to just play because I felt so good again. And and uh, so I keep it up all, all the time. But yes, it was a very dark time. And I was amazed to see how many people messaged me. I'm not joking. I probably had like 100 messages from like big players, big dudes, like peers of mine who were like, I suffer from this, but don't say anything because they don't want people to think that they're like damaged goods or they won't get hired for a gig or something. It was yeah. crazy. You know, you know, man, it's it's so funny. I had exactly the same experience where um, I went to see a, a doctor, a GP, and they said, stop playing, just don't play. Yeah. Um, exactly like you said. And that was the worst thing, man. I totally, um, my playing suffered. I forgot how to navigate the fretboard. Um, <clears throat> that's never been a big thing for me, for me. You know, for many years I was just, oh, we're playing an A minor. Here I am at the fifth fret. So it took me a long, long time to expand and learn the whole fretboard. Um, so when I do have time off, it, 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 it's not second nature. I forget all that, but that exact thing of it didn't get better. My arms just got weak and it wasn't until I saw a physio and it was exactly the same as what you said. No, man, you got to strengthen this. You got to get back in the gym. You got to do forearm exercises, um, nice and slow with light weights to the curls and that to, to build up. Yeah. In the, in the elbows. Uh, cause that's where a lot of the issues were that's where um, it was for me it was like um very similar to like tennis elbow in both of my arms mm. so the pain was like really in my elbows yeah playing just be like oh just so painful in my arms yep. so that that was the region for me yep tennis elbow and golfer elbow so it was like both sides mm. um mm. in one of my arms and but yeah so he had you doing like the the, the light slow wrist curls and, and stuff as well <laughs> to try and yep yeah, so like forward and back twice a day, reps of 40, stretches, all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> the um, other thing that the physio had me do, which really helped, and I, I'm bringing this up because I've, I've come across a lot of people that have had tennis elbow or golfer's elbow, uh, not just guitar players, but just every day that have had shit advice from GPs just like we had. The mm. other thing that really helped me was static holds. Um, mm. I'm not sure if your um, physio got you to do those. So mm. what I mean by that is just getting a weight and just holding it. Yeah, right. 45 seconds of just you know, um, 
at a right angle. It's hard for me to get it to be on camera. You know, so yeah. holding it for yeah. 45, uh, 45 break, and then you know, the other way is round as well. Interesting. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until I started doing those that I, I started to get some sense of recovery. Um, but mm. I got to say, when it, when you have when I had those little breaks away from the guitar, when mm. I first pick it up, oh man, I'm shit. <laughs> yeah. And I made a complete ass of myself a year or two ago at a musician's party here on the Gold Coast where mm. a friend of mine, Licia, a great female guitar player, wouldn't take no for an answer. Come up and jam with me. I'm like, I haven't touched the guitar in three months. You know? And I got up there and I just had nothing. I just yeah. felt silly. But usually when I do have those extended breaks, mm. within a week or two, I'm back better than I ever was. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how that works. You mm. like you momentarily kind of have to learn how to ride the bicycle again. But once you're back, it, it's kind of better than ever. I feel that, man. Like, um, And I, I just think I, I really do believe now, like, you know, I'm only really going to get out what I put into it. And I think everyone arrives at that point eventually, um, especially if you're playing at like a really high level all the time. Maybe not such a big issue if you're just playing like not such technically demanding stuff all the time. But 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 also even if you're not like a bunch of guys are just like man, I've just been totally railroaded in every aspect of my playing by this. Um, and you just really have to work it like like a runner. You know, it's like if if I just told if you told me right now to just go run one kilometer, like I'd probably have like giant range of injuries at the end of it you know Absolutely. um so yeah and you know i just I, I made the post because i talk to people about it all the time and those close to me knew i was going through it and um you know bands that i would tour with were like always asking how i was going and that they also had the same thing and i don't know i just felt like there was a weird culture of like a lot of guys go through it and don't talk about it mm. um and it's nothing to be like ashamed of or worried about like you know you're doing something kind of extraordinary if you play guitar for a living i think i think it's really unnatural for like us chimps to be like huddled over these sticks with strings all day long like it's just not very natural and it, it can injure you you know so um yeah a close friend of mine uh you know same thing came down with the same kind of problem and kind of pulled on a heartstring of mine. So that's why I just shared the story because I think you know, a lot of people think a lot of guys are just invincible and and that nothing is ever going to happen to them. But uh, lot, lots of guys go through it. It's totally normal. It's, mm. It comes with territory, I think. Well, Steve, I had quite a bad um, mm. run where he, he talked about it recently on a live stream about um, losing a lot of the, the, the use of his right arm uh through a bit of damage that he picked up in a in a south american hospital when he was on tour dang don't know if you know about that but he says he, he just can't pick the way he used to after that um wow. and it was funny thomas mclaughlin who i interviewed a couple of weeks ago if people are yeah. seeing this and they're not familiar with my channel go and check out the playlist i've, I've had a few few big guys um yeah. more than a few guys everyone everyone here's a, a name player um he was saying that um he had 20 years off. He just didn't play at all for 20 years. And <laughs> it's only been two years ago that he decided to get back into it. Um, but he also said that Steve Vai, when he was mentoring him, would have six months off and not play at all. 
But I think those guys, yeah, you can always still exercise this, you know, your imagination, your creativity. Of course. So I think once you reach a certain level of technical proficiency, you don't mm. need to be have it actually in your in your head. You you can in your hands. You can hear it in your head, and mm. you kind of automatically know how to how to play that. Dude, I, I totally agree. I think I think it runs off that same principle of like when you're trying to remember something. Like at one point you knew something really clearly and immediately, and it gets you know logged in the hard drive. And, you know, you try to think of that thing and then you think about it and at first it's kind of stiff and crusty and then it's like, oh, it comes back to you. I think playing is very much that way as well with the muscle memory part of it. Mm -hmm. um, like I know that I could take six months off playing and probably love that. Like I don't ever get that problem where I'm like, oh, I haven't played in a couple of days. I really got to I, – I don't get that ever. Um, I'm never able to do that because I make a living playing so I kind of have to play all the time. Sure. Um, but I, but I but I think that could be very beneficial to take an extended period off, you know, you gain some experience in other ways, bring all that wisdom back to the instrument. Um, yeah, be interesting. I, I, I find um, if I play too much, I, I start playing the same thing over and over, uh, yeah. and it all starts sounding the same. And this morning I had a good play, and it was the first time I'd sat down for maybe a week and and had a little bit of a play. I like to put in term backing track into uh youtube oh yeah 90 of what comes up is elevated jam tracks which is my friend tom he just owns youtube when it comes to backing tracks um yeah and, i made over so many of those tracks yeah so man. well that's that's tom in the uk he's a lovely chap man i hung out with him in germany last year at 42 right. gear street yeah top top uh, lad. yeah there's that and this benjamin harrison guy i don't know if you're familiar. i haven't come across him yet no oh man yeah, uh, I feel like recently I, I just kind of discovered that he may, possibly lives in Sydney, oh. and uh, if he does, I'm so going to track him down and be like, "Dude, I I play against your backing tracks <laughs> every single day." Yeah, yeah, I quite often drop the the little comment on on Tom's uh, YouTube channel underneath, like, "Mate, awesome to have morning coffee jam with you again." And then I'll oh, shoot him a right. private message on Facebook as well, and just go, "Man, today's one was great." He puts out a new one every day. God, that's crazy. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, totally. Because there's nothing like I, I jam to backing tracks every day too, without fail. Like it's just a part of my practice, you know, and it's just wonderful when you find one that you really gel with, you know, and it's got good production and it like suits your kind of natural tempo ranges. And I, I love that, man. I'm a huge proponent of backing tracks. I love, love using them. Yeah. Just to throw you out of, out of your comfort zone, I think it is good to just put on something Totally, man. Yeah, yeah. Cover bands. You, have you done much in the way of playing in cover bands over the years? I did when I was at music school, like, because, you know, people were like, oh, you should get out there and play covers. It's a good way to meet other musos and that kind of thing. So this is going back a long time. Um, so I did and played around and just did the Sydney, you know, trawl. But yeah. I got pretty sick of carrying my Hot Rod Deluxe up some staircase at two in the morning and... And eventually joined the bands and just started doing bands after that. Cool. And you said music school. Which which, which music school was that? The Australian Institute of Music. Okay. Which is um, here in Sydney. It's yeah. uh, in the middle of the city pretty much. Nice one. And yeah. what kind of lessons did you learn from that that carried on to the real world? Well, 
uh, I think the the biggest thing that I took away from it was that it was um, at a really crucial point in my life where I was either going to pursue music full time or not, um, which is when you know you're in your late teens, coming into your twenties, and at that point, you know the world is kind of your oyster and you want to pick a direction. Um, and uh, I discovered music when I was in a regular high school and playing became kind of my savior, if you will. It's like the only thing that I became interested in and I kind of just stopped going to school and I would I would just not go and stay at home and play guitar all day. And my mom recognized this and immediately took me out of there and put me in the Institute of Music. And it was at that time where I was like surrounded by people who felt just like me. Um, Whereas when I was in regular high school, you know, people were interested in partying or more conventional life choices, if you will. And so suddenly I was like just in a world where what I wanted to do was really normalized and to just fiercely attack music all the way and go at it as a career was just really normal, both from all the students and all the teachers and everything. So I think the biggest thing I took away from that was that it like really legitimized my love for it. Um, by being in the right environment. I think maybe a lot of people may have pursued music as a full-time thing if they had a setting like that when they were starting out. Um, so it almost feels like the world is designed to push you away from making decisions like that when you're younger. And so for me, it just gave me that nice like red carpet of this is the right thing to do kind of thing. Nice, nice. Because, yeah, the conventional school, uh, I can – actually remember seeing my guidance counselor in, in year 12 and they're talking about you know, your career paths and stuff and what do you mm. want to do I, I want to play guitar well no what do you want to do for a real job yeah, exactly they, they yeah, just right. didn't get that that can be a legit um job if you go about it the right way and it's not just i want to be you know i didn't go in there saying i want to be in a famous band you know with hits and stuff because yeah. realistically that's a very short little uh burst of of fame that might come your way and fame doesn't necessarily mean money and just things like teaching you you said you've got like 20 students or something right now is that you said Mm -hmm. Mm um you know like that man how much better is that than lugging bricks or um (laughs) or dealing with customers that are angry at you all day and day out you know you're sitting there doing something you love it is a blessing. It's not lost on me that I wake up and uh, walk to a room in my house every day. That's certainly nice. And um, I mean, I had a full time job straight out of high school um, up until only about seven years ago or six years ago was when I quit my last job and started doing music and everything else full time. So it's not lost on me how great it is. And um I mean, I love it. It's really nice. Um, but that said, like, if it ever ended and I had to go back and get some normal job, like, as long as it was just something I enjoyed doing, I don't think it would matter. But I haven't found anything else in life that I enjoy more than playing guitar and being involved in music. And um, there's an element of just following the breadcrumbs as well. Like, I had no intention of being, like, you know, a respected musician. I never thought I would end up in that place. It's just that I'm just following those breadcrumbs along. It seems to be working and 
you know, it's, it's amazing that, you know, anyone likes the music that I make because I really make it just for me um, to push myself and see what I can do. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's just really nice to follow the breadcrumbs and see where it goes, really. Totally. There's so many different avenues. Um, you know, I didn't yeah. think I'd be making demos on YouTube and, and the like when I was a kid. Well, there was no YouTube. Totally. Uh, so, you know, these different avenues open up. Um, mm. Yeah, just got to think differently and, and see what else is out there. James, yeah. I'm going to put the call out there for people who are watching. If they want to throw any questions at us, I'll start scanning through all the, the questions and the like now um, sure. because it takes a little while to, to get through some of those. But in the meantime, um, I want to know about strings and picks for you, like string gauges, picks, etc. What's <clears> your choice? What's your flavor? So I have used Diderio 9 to 46 strings since day dot, and I've tried different brands and being offered you know deals with other brands and and this and that but um i'm just so i'm kind of a creature of habit when it comes to gear actually i tend not to fluctuate around things to me nine to 40 i play in standard tuning always so to me i just find that that just feels really balanced in standard tuning i have you know not too much resistance on the uh, on the young person strings and and the the wound strings feel nice and uh, you know tight and, and good. Um, so I've used nine to forty six Diderios forever, and I was a jazz three guy pretty much forever as well. Oh really? Until um, I want to say maybe five years ago. <clears throat> I think it was maybe at the Surf Factory party I met this guy Pete, uh, who owns this company Swiss Picks. Mm-hmm. And um, or I met him at Nam or something. I can't quite remember where we met, but he was like, uh, you know, I know you use the Jazz Three, and I'm a big fan of your stuff, and I make my own take on that, and I want you to try it. And so he gave me a bunch of them, and this is it. Um, so I'm still using this. Cool. I don't think these ones are a production model. These ones are just made specifically for me. These slightly thicker black Swisses. Um, I just cannot tell you how good these things are. They have the brightest, most percussive sound on the string. And because they're kind of cast in a certain way, they don't have that join through the middle, so they don't chirp on the string or anything, which in a recording setting always really annoyed me, hearing that little, like, cheep, cheep across the strings. Yeah. Um, it doesn't do any of that. Uh, it's great. So I've been using this pick for about five years and um, at first, I was like, "Oh, this thing is is so stupid looking," but it, but it has a, a great application. Like when you squeeze down on it, the holes in it create like a suction, so it sticks. Like you grip it really well. Cool. Um, so yeah, I've been using these Swiss picks. Um, what is this? I'm just so I don't say the wrong thing. Oh yeah, the 1.80 millimeter. Okay, so you you don't like any flex flex in the pick whatsoever. No, yeah. no, no flex. I don't yeah. tend to play like much strummy stuff. So obviously using this to strum would not be that great. You want a bit of give across the strum, but most of my music is um, not that. So this this serves really well for that nice hard dynamic. It's funny that I've come to realize that if you want to play the fast, precise stuff, you can't have any flex in the pick. And I haven't spoken to anybody that, that plays fast, precise picking that has a flexible pick at all. I've got 
the lightest of them all would be, I've got Sammy Bowler's pick right here. Uh, he was mm. kind enough to send me a whole packet of, of his. Let me just change the screen so I can see it up here. Um, mm. Let's see if that'll focus. Uh, and that's a, a Dunlop, a really thin one, but there's still no flex about that whatsoever. Right. Uh, and, and when I do use something, it was Andy James. I met Andy James at, Na at NAMM. And it was mm. really, really funny. I was walking along and I was sort of standing there and there's a bloke standing beside me. I just looked at him and went, Oh, Andy James, how, how you going, man? Yes. <laughs> Good. Uh, and I said, the to classic him, man, bump into. Yeah, uh, and I said to him, man, your picking is so damn precise and really um, amazing. And he, he sort of leaned forward and went, I've got a secret. And he put his hand in his pocket, and this was, he was just about to release his new signature picks. And right. he handed me one. And I took that home, and I thought, wow, that's really heavy. Mm. And I used that nonstop, wore all the, the print and everything off it. I've still got it around here somewhere. And as soon as I went back to the picks I was using previous to that, that had a slight bit of flex, it felt like, and I say this all the time, it was like trying to write with a rubber pen. And it was just... I mean, that's how I feel about it too. Like, yeah. People say, you know, oh, you know, how can you play with a pick that has no flex? And to me, like in my brain, just holding the pick lighter gives it flex. So you almost yeah. don't need a pick with flex. Like if I'm strumming, I just hold the pick lightly and it moves in my hand across the strings. But if yeah. you squeeze down on it tight, then it gives you that really hard dynamic. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've been using these for so long now that if I have to play with anything else, like if someone just hands me like a floppy pick, I just like cannot play guitar anymore. It's just not good. <laughs> I totally get it. Totally get it. I... um. It I got given a whole bunch of these chicken picks. Um, oh yeah, I know guys who use those. Yeah. I've heard stuff. That's it. Oh, right, the sun. The sun's just starting to creep across here. But they're they're a strange pick. Mm. Oh, the sun sunlight's hitting me right now. I'm melting. I'm melting. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they're yeah. a big triangle. Yeah, they look cool. And I really like these because they they're not. They don't wear out. I, I, I've tried all the, the Dunlop flow and all that kind of thing, and I, they just lose the shape way too quick. Mm. I lose the, the point on it, and um, mm. even though I, I do love love them. So, yeah, the, whatever material the, the Chicken Picks guys are using on, on those um, is really cool, and I need to get some more. Yeah, I've like I've never been really like a geary guy. Um, like... When someone says, do you want to try this? Uh, it gives me anxiety. <laughs> like, oh, really? Like, I'm not, like, I just know what I like. And um, I, I'm very, very much so of the school of thought that it takes a long time to really know a piece of gear. Like, and to get the best out of it, you know, you need to adapt your playing to it and to really understand its strengths and weaknesses. Um, like, it takes me years to like a guitar of any guitar like even if it's a brand new surf for example like of course it's amazing straight out of the box but it, it takes a long time for me to know what it's good at what its strengths are like what i should and shouldn't use it for and then and i apply that to more pieces of gear so i tend to have gear if i'm using it i've probably had it for a really long time and i'm not really interested in like beginning that whole long process with another piece of gear just willy-nilly um and the same thing is like with with the picks like or strings and that kind of thing i feel like if i was to in, bring new things into the fold I'm, I'm not really 
interested in just trying it out for a day and being like, yeah, because I mean, I can't really make a call off using it for a day, you know? Yeah, sure. Did you ever consider going lighter in your strings when you started having issues with, with uh, the tendon, tendonitis and stuff? I didn't because I didn't want to like um, accept that I had been defeated in any way. <laughs> like I just wanted to get back to where I felt comfortable. Um, and so I didn't consider doing lighter gauges or anything like that. I just wanted to be able to like, you know, if I was playing the same setup that I used to and it didn't feel um, bad, then I would know that I was on the right path. Cool. And uh, apart from that initial period where I was having lots of weakness in my hand, I could still play kind of fine throughout that whole period, but I just did it with a lot of pain, yeah, you know, right. yeah. and that was like distracting to me. Um, and it was just very frustrating because I just, you, you know, when you get lost in the playing, it's a great feeling and, and you can't have any distractions when you're playing complex music. Um, and I'm the kind of guy where I'm usually so well physically practiced, like for a tour or, or whatever it is that I don't usually make playing mistakes. I tend to make like concentration errors. So I'll like, you know, be in the middle of some solo on stage and be like, Oh, where did I put my car keys? And I don't know, <laughs> I make a mistake, you know, like, so I'm always trying to strengthen that concentration game while I'm playing. And, um, and so the sensations in my arms were distractions. Yeah. Even though I could play fine, I would like I was very hyper aware of how my arms were feeling and that was a distraction. And so I just wanted to get to that point where I wasn't feeling that and I just felt like if I'd bumped the string gauge down and it felt fine, then that wouldn't be a good gauge of was I back to my full health kind of thing. Yeah, right. I, I actually um went to eights, a friend of mine gave me a set of eights and I thought they were gonna suck. Mm. They were cool, man. They were Probably so cool. Glorious, yeah. <laughs> it was like oh man I'm not limited by physical strength I can play anything I can think of I just need to learn some more things yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'm not limited by by technique and, and pain or and strength anymore I'm limited by my imagination and, and knowledge so that was a bit of an eye, eye opener yeah um, let's go through the questions here uh, <laughs> besides besides being amazing at guitar and somehow recovering from your injury what are you most grateful for and why are you an underground guitar god <laughs> from become the knight it's probably a friend of yours <laughs> oh yes yes uh we we met this this year at nam actually oh cool um, uh yeah michael cooperus i want to say if i'm remembering forgive me if that's wrong um anyway um so what are you most grateful for i want to ask yeah i was going to say what's the question alzheimer's um um, I would say that, look, right, right now I'm most grateful to be in the position in life I'm in where things are quite peaceful in the fact that, you know, I'm kind of free and in a position to even work on the music that I'm doing and kind of live this little dream that I had for a long time where I wanted to make records and, and tour them and, and uh, none, none of that stuff is possible unless there's people there who enjoy what you do. So I'm just, yeah, really grateful that, um, I guess, thanks to technology, uh, and, and I'm a big proponent of being independent. And, you know, back in the day, there would be no hope for anyone to hear music like what I do. But now because of the internet and Bandcamp culture and all that stuff and Spotify, 
I think guys like me can have pretty fruitful little careers, if you will. Um, so I'm just really grateful to be doing that and doing this um, and just having fun, you know, and not having to go to a day job anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's good. Aussie fucking Pete wants to know, when will we see you on the road touring again? That's a good question. And I would like to know that too. Um, my agent is currently trying to put together a tour um, with tentative dates already aside and lots of things have to come together for that to happen, I think, because things are really uncertain. Um, even just keeping an eye on, on Australia, like different parts of Australia are, are kind of all up and down. So it's, it's really hard to know. Um, Obviously, anyone who follows what I do know that I have a record kind of uh, imminently coming out. Of course, I'll be hitting touring big time. My band are already learning all the material now, working at it. All the wheels are in motion for that to happen. Um, but I feel like I'm just in the same boat as anyone else. Like until there's some clarity on what's actually possible, it's really hard to know or it's, it's difficult to start booking in things with this kind of mentality because tours are on the knife edge enough as they are without wondering if you know and guys like me at my level can't sustain you know big rescheduling costs and stuff like that so um the answer is as soon as possible hopefully as soon as things start to come back to normal a bit um there'll be announcements on the record and touring cool Got another one from Aussie fucking Pete. He says, uh, what has been your favorite EP pr to produce and what challenged you creatively? Um, if we're talking about mine, then I think I had a lot of fun making the Usurper EP, which was the second uh, thing I released in, uh, was my first EP actually, but the second kind of solo thing I put out. And that was a lot of fun just because this will tie right back to the beginning of this interview when I said that uh, it was that Angus Young Donington uh, DVD that was like, oh, shit, that's what I want to do with my life. Because of that, I always had a soft spot for the SG as a guitar. And um, I always was like, look, one day I'm going to release something where I played an SG on it, you know. And so I, I went out and I found like a nice 61 reissue SG and, and I got it and I played it and I was like, God, this is such a stupid feeling guitar. And yes. <laughs> I didn't agree with it at all. But I made the entire EP and recorded it with that SG. And um, so for me, that was a bit of a kind of, um, you know, hat tip to Angus and just uh, playing that guitar. And, and it just never stayed in tune and it was so weird. And, and uh, so that was really fun. And it was just a challenge because... You know, I, I use, I'm very big on the bar and my kind of playing style doesn't lend itself to like that particular kind of guitar very well. So, um, so that was just a fun experiment making that one. It's funny. As soon as you said SG, I kind of wrote down SG because I was going okay. to bring up, I just can't play them, man. It, everything feels too far that way. It's yeah, like, it, it, it doesn't work. I get that. It's, it, it's it, over here. And I've never met Angus Young, but he must be tiny because it looks huge on him and everything is just too small for me on an <laughs> yeah. SG. Uh, I agree. Yeah, just can't get it to work. Um, it's, it's weird. Just, it makes it pushes your hand so far this way, doesn't it? Because the yeah, bridge playing, is like 
halfway into the guitar. So yep. you're like, yep. And to stand with it is just awful. I, I when when we did the um, the tour off the back of that EP, I took that guitar out for some shows, and yeah, just <laughs> silly, silly, but but fun, you know, because that guitar to me is like that was the guitar visually that started it all. Cool. There's one more question there. So if if folks do have any more questions, quickly throw them in there before I wrap things up with James. But another one here from Nick. What does he find to be the best method to market his solo work, build slash build a solid following? So Mm -hmm. he being you, what, what do you find to be the best method to market your solo work and build a solid following? Um, my approach has, uh, always been that, I'm not the biggest, like I'm not into that whole self-promotion, building up numbers or like playing the game, trying to figure out the algorithm thing. I've really never been about that. And I think my numbers reflect that. Like I don't have big Instagram numbers or, or you know, Facebook numbers or anything like that. So I, I remember when I first started getting noticed um, in the kind of instrumental guitar scene that's now now big and healthy, um, I always just thought that if I could get, um, the companies that I work with to share my material, um, and help me in that regard, then I really wouldn't have to do that work. Like, because, you know, I could post something to my, you know, 5,000 followers or something, but let's just say if like all of the companies I'm I'm endorsed by also share that thing, then my thing goes out to a million people mm. collectively. Mm. So that's kind of been an, an approach of mine and and a particular area where I think the relationship is really important um, and has been really helpful to me. And obviously I credit being on the map at all to a couple of companies taking risks on me back in the day and believing in me and and um look beyond that just the organic approach you know i really just focus on the music and try to make the music as sincerely and as best as i can and let it do the talking and i think to an an extent like in the background in the underground it has and at face value i haven't had to go and constantly you know keep up the image of success on the internet or anything like that because that to me is just i'm not really interested in doing that cool Cool. So um, you're absolutely right about companies sharing your stuff. Um, mm. Man, uh, I share stuff on my Facebook page. I get, barely get any likes or, or shares or anything. But if a company um, picks up on a demo that I've done and shares it, yeah, I, you'll see the big jump in subscribers. You, know, you might get 50 in a day or something. You go, Whoa, holy hell, that was cool, you know. Um, so, yeah, that that is a much bigger reach, isn't it, than trying to do it yourself totally man um and look if people want to focus on having big numbers and and all that stuff that's totally fine but you know i know so many guys with like colossal numbers that none of that has really translated into real life tangible stuff um which is what i think really matters like for example playing with peers that you respect or being billed on you know, good tours or, you know, record sales and stuff like that. Those things are, are important. And I think that the climate today just shows that there's really no rules. You don't have to really do anything. You just have to kind of forge your own path and and stick to it. And it'll, it'll either work for you in your niche. And, and I have such a 
tiny niche. Like my thing is so particular and so small. Um, but I'm effective in that little crack that I've gone into and I'm not trying to have this big wide net approach to things. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's important that you don't have to have that big wide net approach to things. You just have to find your niche and communicate to those that are kind of in that niche with you as well. I think it's funny you mentioned the numbers. Um, and just, I, I, I deal a lot with manufacturers and some are very focused on the numbers yeah, you, you approach them, hey, I'd like to do a demo on this particular piece of gear. How many subscribers have you got? Is the first thing mm-hmm. someone will right. say. Right. Then there's others that will say, oh, send us a link to some of your stuff. And they'll, they'll have a look and they don't care that you don't have that big of numbers. They'll come back with, hey, man, your quality is really good. Yeah, sure. We'd love to work with you. So yeah, it, it is a, one of those things that people can, some get wrapped up in the numbers. Others can actually see quality for what it's worth. Um Definitely. I mean, that, that, that's a, a better way of saying what I was trying to say is that I think, I think people know quality when they see it. Um, obviously it's down to personal preference and taste. And sometimes the stars just align in that way where the person that you want to be affiliated with, um, someone in that camp uh, respects what you do. And so the numbers don't really mean anything, you know, just going to take one last question here from Rob Jarrett. Any recommendations on some prog bands some of us may not know? Uh, well, I mean, it just depends if we're talking new school or old school. Um, I mean, look, there's there's all the wave of current new guys, like I mentioned before, that are, that are awesome and releasing amazing music like, you know, David Maximichich and Pliny and Nick Johnson and, um, you know, a bunch of uh, guys in that camp are making amazing music, but um, like all the old stuff, like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all the classic rock stuff. I mean, I listen to a lot of funk and jazz these days as well. Um, uh, People should check out Christian Scott, this trumpet player that has shaped my kind of melodic sensibility a lot over the last five years or so. Um, so yeah, those would be some to check out. Cool, cool. My battery has just run out my on my camera. Oh look at that! I'm frozen right there. I can fix that. Give me one second. <laughs> change it to that one, and then I hit that little button, and I'm back. But using my MacBook, oh, I'm a strange pinky color now, but that's okay. That's what you've been looking at the whole time. Um, I haven't been able to get a, a battery, a power adapter with everybody at home, and everyone's jumped on the streaming bandwagon. You can't get certain uh, accessories for for cameras right now because everyone's wanting them and i haven't been able to get a power adapter for my camera so i do run out uh, of um of of battery and sometimes i will i'll I'll let the person know and do a quick little uh, if if i know we're going to be going for like three hours or something and quickly try and change it all but (laughs) that one just got me just got me before i had time to, to wrap it up uh James, I want to thank you so much, man, for your time. Uh, as I said, the, the the lesson that I did take with you, I got so much out of that in terms of how to practice and warm up in the mornings, and it built a lot of flow to my playing. Mm-hmm. How can people get a hold of you if they want to take lessons with you? Uh, probably the easiest way is just, just reach out to me on any one of my social media channels like uh, Facebook or Instagram. You can just 
contact me there. Otherwise, via email as well, which is my full name, James Norbert Ivani at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, just, just touch base and we can start the conversation. Uh, it's no problem. Cool. And whereabouts can people get your music if they're interested <laughs> in checking out your music? Uh, the best way to support me is on Bandcamp. Um, so they can purchase my music directly from Bandcamp, which is a wonderful uh, service music website for artists, uh, independent artists particularly like myself. Um, otherwise, man, stream away on Spotify, you know, or all the usual Google Play things as well. I'm, I'm on all of those things. Cool, cool. So, folks, I want to, again, thank James for coming along. Please uh, like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. I have been bringing quite a few cool people uh, on this Chit Chats with GitKat series. It's been yeah. a lot of fun. Um, I don't think people know about me. It's it's really funny, like considering the caliber of guests that I've had on the last few weeks, it's just mm. a matter of time. So if you are watching this and you are enjoying what I, what I do, check out the playlist for some cool guests. Please share, like, subscribe for both mine and James's socials. And um, folks, as usual, I got the magic button. I'm going to hit the magic button. The magic button's right here, and it goes something like this: <laughs> Bye. <laughs>